Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The Sermon on the Mount, 5th chapter of Matthew, 6th chapter and 7th chapter. Luke uh, covers a part of this same uh, sermon and has a few variations in it. But in the 5th and 6th and 7th chapters, if you have brought your Bible, you, you may want to just indicate in your Bible the first few verses of that, the blessed are, and that is known as the Beatitudes. Most of you know that, but let's not assume that everybody knows that. Those first few verses, almost at the, uh, just almost the introduction of this, is known as the Beatitudes, and that's not a common word we use every day. So we wonder, what does Beatitude mean? Well, Beatitude is just supreme blessedness. And Jesus is pronouncing supreme blessedness on certain people. Now, this entire Sermon on the Mount, as a whole was basically casting vision for the work of the kingdom, the membership of the kingdom, the constitution of the kingdom, defining the kingdom. And starting off with that first part, the Beatitudes, was in a a general sense giving a portrait of that Jewish culture in that day. For instance, when he was speaking to those people, He was really speaking relevant things to them in their life status. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They could identify with that. Blessed are the meek or the humble. Of course they were humble. They were the lowest social class, the common people. Blessed are they who mourn. These were people that were mourning for many reasons, the the conditions being under uh, Roman rule instead of in their own free land. Or mourning because of the continuous mourning of Israel looking for a Messiah and all they've been throughout their history. Their, their religion was just a religion that led itself to mourning when they began to consider where they had been, what they had done, what they were looking forward to, and where was the Messiah. So it was all an integral part of their religion. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. They related to that. So it was a portrait of the people he was speaking to in that day. But there's something else about the Sermon on the Mount, and that is, this is a watershed moment. We look at the time when Jesus preached on, eat my body, drink my blood. And that was difficult for his followers to understand because he started off talking about the bread of life. Now, they were interested in hearing a sermon on the bread of life. But as he got deeper into the sermon and he began to proclaim, you must eat my body and drink my blood, then they checked out because they didn't understand that. That 
was most assuredly a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. We see that. We understand it. We grasp it fully and completely and immediately. But we read the Sermon on the Mountain. How many times have we read it? And we've probably missed the fact this was a watershed moment. This was a moment whenever he threw down the gauntlet at the very early stages of his ministry and he established what kind of people would be considered legitimate adherents of the kingdom and by implication who would not be considered members of the kingdom and it left the hearers deciding whether they wanted to be a part of that or whether they understood Jesus to imply that they were a part of that or not. So it was challenging, and you continue on in the Sermon on the Mount as we get deeper into this in the coming weeks, and we see the challenges that are thrown out there. And the whole thing is confrontive in nature as they listened to what takes up three chapters in our modern version of the Bible a considerable amount of the time, a longest sermon that Jesus preached that we have recorded. And in this, we have this confrontive nature of the Sermon on the Mount that just just forces us to respond to his demands for commitment. Do we respond or do we walk away? Just like that time when he talked about the bread. And the blood. What do we do? And some have not in modern times necessarily appreciated the confrontive nature of the Sermon on the Mount. They're uneasy with it. So here, real briefly, is what some of the modern scholars and theologians have tried to do with the Sermon on the Mount rather than just accept it plainly for what it is. First of all, some have suggested the Sermon on the Mount is the law of Moses on steroids. That is, that if the law of Moses required them to do things, what Jesus is requiring them to do just is, is so far beyond what Moses and the law required. They said, we couldn't even live by the law. How do you expect us to live by these things? They feel very insulted by the implications of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, they reference the teachings of Paul that the law was impossible to follow, and its ultimate purpose, therefore, was just to show them how much of a failure they were. So modern theologians sometimes view the Sermon on the Mount the same way. Jesus never intended you to follow these things. He just wanted to show you how incompetent you are. Now, if you read the writings of Paul, he would show that the, the law definitely did that. We can't live by the law. It's impossible. We, we fail, and the law had no remedy for that failure, no permanent remedy. If we could just put off the implications of our failures with sacrifices once in a while, but there's no remedy. And Paul talked about righteousness, And he had a whole different take on righteousness, which we'll cover in just a little bit. But you'll find that also righteousness flows as a theme in the Sermon on the Mount. So these people look at the Sermon on the Mount as unrealistic. 
no expectations for us to really apply these principles in our daily life. Because it's just impossible. That's one way of writing it off. The second attempt to write off the Sermon on the Mount is to dilute that confrontive nature on the Sermon on the Mount by suggesting that the principles and the directives are to be applied only at a private level as a public uh, lifestyle. Don't worry about it. But in your private life, try to do better. And that's just silly. You and I know that's ridiculous. Our Christianity is not just for our private life. It's supposed to be an everyday throughout our life kind of a thing. The third abuse of the Sermon on the Mount, because they don't like its confrontive nature, is to suggest that the teachings only apply to hyper-spiritual people. You, you people are going to love this one. It is so demanding. It is so strict that only people like monks and priests and pastors and other like-minded radical people should ever have to obey these things. Normal people like you are off the hook. Of course, that's not true, but some have suggested that. The fourth suggestion, what do we do with this Sermon on the Mount that slaps us in the face? It says it only applies to people who are saved. In other words, when you get saved, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit helps you to overcome. And so the only way you can possibly look at the, at the uh, Sermon on the Mount is this must apply to people who have found God and found the strength to be able to live those things, but otherwise you can't do this, and we'll address that in a little while as well. What they forget is Jesus spoke these things to his disciples before anybody understood the doctrine of grace that flows from salvation through the preaching of the gospel. What Christ was doing is he was describing these are the kind of people that belong in the kingdom. And he was looking at his disciples and he was saying, up your game. Take it to another level. You need to make some improvements. These were practical things that they can and they should incorporate in their life. What has happened is there's been a tendency to rely on the moral ethics of Paul and his grace more than the moral ethics of Jesus. As a matter of fact, some of these people who are deluding the Sermon on the Mount say, well, let's follow the ethics of Paul because there's a lot of grace to play with. Well, what happens is people love grace because they don't think they have to be accountable for their lifestyle as long as grace is there to cover them. And what Jesus was saying is you are accountable for your actions. You are responsible for your lifestyle. If you're going to be a member of the kingdom, you're expected to act like a member of the kingdom. Don't shortchange yourself. Don't hide behind a veil of grace. Don't say I'm saved by grace and I'm forgiven and and therefore I can do anything I want. Grace is there to forgive your failures, but it's not there to ignore your negligence. The fact is, many esteemed scholars have identified the Sermon on the Mount as the greatest moral document that's ever been written of all time. Far surpassing the inadequate efforts of other famed philosophers, going clear back to Aristotle or Buddha, who wrote about 
how you ought to have uh, uh, incorporate certain principles into your life to be good people. Or uh, the more recent uh, Emmanuel Kant or John Stuart Mill or John Locke or Bertrand Russell or Nietzsche or any of these philosophers that multitudes buy their books and try to learn from these philosophers how to be a better person. But what Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, off the cuff, no notes, no years of study, he just, just rolled out of his being, ended up being far superior to all the other philosophers of the world of all time, rolled together. They don't compare with what Jesus delivered to us. Therefore, people, we cannot, we must not ignore what the Sermon on the Mount says to us. Now, I've given this a great build-up, but you need to go home and read it again and read what Jesus is saying to you through the Sermon on the Mount, not just a matter of history of what he said to those people. Now, let's get started with the Sermon on the Mount. The first part of Matthew 5, with that delivery of the Sermon on the Mount, with that first section, the Beatitudes, notice first, and seeing the multitude. And went unto a mount. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. My father loved to quote scripture. He loved to memorize scripture, memorize chapters at a time. He could quote the entire Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters. And he loved to challenge me. I don't know why he picked on me. To memorize as well. So when I was in kindergarten, we had show and tell. We didn't have many toys to bring and show. We were not rich people. Two or three weeks of show and tell could exhaust anything I had of any interest to other kids. I find myself showing up to show and tell one day with nothing in my possession to be able to brag about. So when it came my turn, what do you got? I figured in my kindergarten, my, if you didn't have something to show, you could have something to tell. Makes sense. Scott, what do you have today? I said, well, and seeing the multitude, he went into the mount, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and I began to quote for them, the Sermon on the Mount. And I went several verses down through all of the blesseds and got down there somewhere out near the light of the world. city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a, a candle and put it under a bishop on a candlestick. It gives light unto all that are in the house. Let man, therefore, see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Isn't that interesting how stuff kind of hangs with you for your whole life? <laughs> Teacher snatched me up and took me to the principal's office. I thought, I've had it. And she stood me there, and the principal, in those days, principals were about eight feet tall. They were huge. Stood me before that and said, you've got to hear what he did. He said, well, son, tell me. And seeing the multitude... He went into a mountain. When he was said, his disciples came into it. And I went through that as far as my little brain could take me. And he looked at the teacher. He said, he's going to set the world on fire one of these days. 
I went back to my class. I didn't get to see the famous whipping machine. Fabled to be in his closet, I, I thought. You bury these things in your heart. I'm all for scripture memorization. I don't know how many of you can quote scripture. If you can't quote one single scripture, my question is why? Why? These words are life. These are the salvation. These are the words of God, the living word of God. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And seeing the multitude, he went into a mount. Away from the multitude, you understand? And when his disciples came unto him, he departed from the multitude. And when his disciples followed him up the mount. So he was not speaking to the multitude. When his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. So the audience is the disciples. He's left the multitude behind when he begins to speak this. The second thing I want you to notice about the Sermon on the Mount is the theme. You will find the theme of righteousness running throughout this sermon. And this is not the kind of righteousness that Paul was talking about. Now, there is righteousness that you could think about that would be uh, right standing, that which is just. There's a difference between that which is just and justification. Paul's version of righteousness was justification. That is forcing, imposing a righteousness on you through a legitimate means that otherwise you would never achieve. That's justification. You were put in right standing by Jesus Christ. He made you justified. And one little play on the words that we have all in church learned from years ago is justified. One way of remembering it, even though this is not literally how the word was formed, is just as if I'd never done it. That's justified. You did it, but justified treats you as though it, you didn't. Justified by Jesus Christ. In Paul's concept, righteousness could not be obtained by us in such a way, in such a degree, in, in, in such a quality that it could ever purchase favor from God for us. It could not purchase salvation. What Paul is saying about righteousness is you aren't good enough to earn a place in heaven. No matter how clean you have lived your life, no matter how many good deeds you have done, no matter how nice a person you think you are, no matter how generous, no matter how, how caring and loving of other people, you still can't do it because Isaiah, we reflect on back on Isaiah, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We just don't measure up. Our works are not good enough. That's Paul's view of righteousness. But Paul also realized that having been justified by Jesus Christ, made righteous by him, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are, our sins are washed away because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't neglect the fact that from that point forward, you have a responsibility to live a godly life. Salvation is supposed to impact the way you talk, the way you think, 
the things that you used to enjoy in life, you start analyzing those things. Are those things that bring glory to God? Are those things that please Him? You start changing your lifestyle. Paul expects in his theology, he expects you to begin to train, change, to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. If you're just parking here for the joy of salvation and thinking I'm going to heaven, but you don't think you have to change your lifestyle, you don't understand the theology of Paul. Yet Jesus is talking about righteousness, and he's not talking about Paul's righteousness. What Jesus is talking about in righteousness is that which you can change. That which doesn't take the power of the Holy Spirit through salvation by grace in order to accomplish. These are everyday things in life that you are responsible for in your life that you ought to be take ownership of. There are certain things you can do. You, can make, you make choices every day about the kind of language you use, the things that you watch, the things that you take as entertainment. Those are choices you make. The things you do with your body, with your life. These are choices you make. Granted, there are some things that are beyond your ability to break. And you need the power of God. But there's some things that are just a choice. In other words, you don't have to get saved and have the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to make the decision to get up on Sunday morning and just go and worship God. That is a decision you can make. And you have made today. You're responsible for that. You don't have to pray, God, give me the power to go to church. And God's thinking, grow up. Do it yourself. Show me you have enough incentive in your life to honor me. So the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about are some simple and basic things about your lifestyle. The Jewish people were keenly aware of the challenge of coming before God in, in, in at least a basically decent way so that we wouldn't feel totally uh, rejected by God. Now, I know we're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I think you're not perfect. I know some of you, I know you're not perfect. We're not perfect. But there is still a certain decorum. There is still a certain expectancy about how we come before the Lord. And David wrote this in the 24th a psalm when he said who will ascend the mountain of the Lord who will stand in his holy place and then he gives an answer about some very practical things about us before we come into the presence of God and he wasn't talking about the grace that Paul taught and the righteousness and justification he knew none of that stuff he just said you know if you're going to come before God you ought to be decent he says, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Those are very practical things that, that David is saying. If you're an idol worshiper, if you swear by false gods, if you don't have a pure heart, and a pure heart just simply means that you have good intentions in spite of your failures. It's a pure heart. You don't have evil intentions. These are the bare minimum things to make us feel like we really are prepared to come before the Lord. The Jews understood that. I think what's happening in Christianity today, we've relied so much on grace to excuse our crudeness and our vulgarities. We've shied away from making an effort to live by some practical ethical standard for fear of becoming too legalistic and appearing to try to earn our salvation and favor with God. We're afraid of that, that, 
that sense of maybe I'm trying to earn my salvation. But kingdom ethics, and that's a term I want you to lock into your brain and your heart today. Kingdom ethics, because that's what we're talking about. Not just how Christ can transform you, but how you need to get a hold of your life and transform yourself for the privilege of fellowship with God. Kingdom ethics, and how kingdom ethics have too often been lost. And grace has become a cover-up for lazy Christianity. I was pastoring in California, and the man who at the time I went to that church was the head of men's ministry. I heard him talking at one point. It was uh, not in a church setting. We were gathered somewhere else, and he let loose with some vulgar words. And I challenged him, you know, what are you doing talking like that? And his response to me was, never mind, it's just guy talk, Pastor. It's, it's innocence, just guy talk. That's no excuse. Absolutely no excuse. God cares about what comes out of your mouth. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the Bible says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you got garbage coming out of your mouth, you know what's in your heart? You have a responsibility to guard your mouth, to get control of your mouth. James says it's so difficult. That little tongue in there, men can build little rudders and guide giant ships. But the tongue, no man can tame. But there are certain things that you can do to fight that battle against this unruly tongue that brings a poor testimony to your life. How do we come before the Lord? Well, let's start with some kingdom ethics, shall we? The Beatitudes. This supreme blessedness. These synonyms for beatitude would be ecstasy, bliss, exultation. You, you read the Beatitudes with these synonyms in mind. When Sometimes we've substituted happy. Happy just doesn't cut it. This is beyond happy. I mean, this is ecstasy. There's a difference between being happy and being ecstatic. You've seen people who are ecstatic. That's what Jesus is inferring here when he says, blessed, supremely blessed, ecstatic, exalted. Lifted up to the third heavens are those who, and then he goes into the list. And keep in mind this repeated refrain in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. He states this with great emphasis. You're supremely blessed, people. You poor in spirit, you're supremely blessed. You merciful, you're supremely blessed. You meek, you're supremely blessed. You persecuted, you're supremely blessed. And he keeps using this refrain because he's driving home to the point to a people who are despondent, discouraged, on the verge of hopelessness, who nobody has ever told them that they are worth a, a, a plug nickel, as we would say in our language. They aren't worth a chunk of lead. 
Nobody has ever spoken to these people with hope. And Jesus comes in and gathers these, these misfits of society together. And he says, you people are extremely blessed. You that are mourning, you are supremely blessed. You that feel so persecuted and outcast by society, you're supremely blessed. And they begin to, uh, their, their spirits start reviving. Somebody is telling them there's hope in their life. You have to understand how they perceived what Jesus was ministering to them. This impact on this Jewish culture that had become so stratified. It was not in God's intentions for the Jewish culture to be stratified. He had designed that in such a way so that there could be balance in that society, that the poor could be taken care of by the rich. He did not intend for it to become what it became, but it became stratified, and the rich became the oppressors, and the poor became the oppressed. And even in the religious section, where you would think everybody has something in common, they stratified that. And you had Pharisees who were vying and, and, and arguing with the Sadducees who had uh, a conflict with the Essenes and, and with the Zealots. And they were all trying to, to decide who was the best. There was constant competition among them. There was bitter hatred among them. And then after you got down to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the uh, Zealots and, 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 and the Essenes, then you get down to that lower strata that was just the common people they didn't have any such designation. And so they were left out of all the special religious recognition that went on in this culture. And among the people that Jesus spoke to, among his disciples, among his disciples there was not one Pharisee or Sadducee or Zealot or Essene. It was the common people. The people that society had forgotten and disregarded they didn't get any respect. They got very little attention. He assembles this team of disciples to train and empower them, this stratified society, which, which put people into different levels of society that was so bad that it, it even mattered what town you were from. If you came from the wrong town, you just weren't worth much. You remember that? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? If you came from Nazareth, you were just out of luck. You might have been a wonderful person. You might have been very responsible, providing for your family. You just came from the wrong side of the country. You came from the wrong town. And Jesus ignored all of that, and he didn't take the upper crust. Upper crust. Somebody said it's all that the upper crust, that's all the crumbs held together by their dough. It's the upper crust. He took the common people. And he said, such is the kingdom. And began to minister to them. He described the kind of people in the kingdom that he envisioned were supremely blessed. Common, ordinary, oppressed, humble, broken, abused, mistreated, overlooked, cast off society, snubbed by elites, people who struggled to exist, who labored for daily bread, people who endured the hardships of life. They had very little resources. People had very little, but they were quite willing 
to share of what they had. So he begins to pump hope into them. He elevated the broken and the oppressed and the abused and told them, such is the kingdom of God. You compose the kingdom of God. And their hearts begin to beat. Their eyes light up. Their spirits are revived. Somebody was bringing them hope. Somebody cared. Somebody is instilling vision in them. They would be the people that would constitute the kingdom. Not the Pharisees. Not the Sadducees. Not the priests. Jesus has come to say, it's you. Jesus always concentrated on advances his, his kingdom and incorporating those who have no other notoriety. He's always taken the least and made the most out of it. It's not your worth by earthly standards. It's your worth by God's standards. And he tells them as he goes down the list, I know you're not rich. I know you're not privileged. I know you're not considered the religious people. You're the people that everyone else considers that with all of their warts and hurts and struggles and pains and insecurities, nobody pays attention to you. But I'm telling you, blessed are the poor. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who endure persecution for righteousness' sake. Christ was now talking their language. The Beatitudes are unique in these ways. First of all, it's suggested by one theologian that they are some sort of a manifesto. Right up front, let's just define the kingdom for you. And in establishing this manifesto, Jesus also clearly establishes the ins and the outs. Who belongs and who is not welcome. Number two, they are unexpectedly contrary to conventional thinking both in the culture of Christ's day and in our culture. We, we read the Beatitudes and we have this conflict. Opposites. The poor in spirit are extremely blessed. That's an opposite, this contrast. Jesus was a brilliant communicator as he used this just to, to, to weave this beautiful, beautiful uh, sermon that he's He's presenting before the people. He is, they are captivated by what he has to say. He's not up there saying rich people have got it made. You poor people are just so... so. He, he is taking the very opposite stance, a fresh approach to everything they have ever heard before. They've never heard anybody. No, no priest, no Levite. They've never heard anybody speak like this. This unconventional, contrary, countercultural preaching, if you would. N.T. Wright suggests that our journey into the Beatitudes is like passing through some sort of a barrier, like a sound barrier or a time warp or something into this weird dimension where everything works backward. Dallas Willard calls the Beatitudes God-based inversion. It's almost an oxymoron. It's almost a, a paradox. You're blessed when you're persecuted. I would tend to think I'm blessed when I'm not persecuted. And Jesus says, but no, you don't understand kingdom principles. Consider yourself supremely blessed when you're in deep mourning. How do we do that? We're conflicted. Number three, 
the Beatitudes, these blessings call attention to the things that are not typically considered very manly. This is not the macho list at all. When Jesus is telling in the Sermon on the Mount as it continues on and teaching them on what God expects of you, you can just about rest assured that what Christ expects of us as members of the kingdom has nothing to do with being macho. It would have struck these men as saying, you want me to lay down my manhood to be able to follow you? You want somebody to slap me on the face and I don't slap them back? Ain't going to happen, buddy. All this testosterone is just oozing out of her pores. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to have to learn to walk a different walk. You who are so aggressive and so confrontive and you want to prove your manhood by how strong you are and how much of a bully you are and how you can force anything you want, you can get it done. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Supremely blessed are those who don't have to go about making their own path through this world. But they are humble before God. And it's just so contrary to everything we understand about being a real man in this world has attempted to find real man and made a mess out of it. Number four, this revolutionary teaching from Jesus on true blessedness, supreme blessedness, causes the modern reader to reflect on what we think makes us happy. And we look at that, and of course we get the same thing. Those things don't make most people happy. We compare that list to our sources of happiness today. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says blessed are the poor. He didn't say in spirit. So there's an implication here that maybe Jesus was not only talking about just being spiritually discouraged, poor in spirit, but he may have been speaking to their financial situation as well. You may not have much, but you don't know how blessed you are. And once again, that strikes us as so confusing in this day and age because we thought the possession of things and the possession of money was the road to happiness. And Jesus told us a long time ago, that's not the way it works in the kingdom. I'm going to end this morning before I ever get to the Beatitudes, verse by verse. Start there next Sunday. I just want to give this little run into that on my final point. There are five major themes that we will be looking at as we read the Beatitudes and study them. Themes of the word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? And it won't take me long to go through these. First of all, think of blessings in the sense in which Jesus is saying you're blessed by God. The Jews would understand that. When you're talking about blessing, the first thing to think about is blessed by God. This would have been obvious to the listeners. Those that are meek are blessed by the God of Israel. So you're going to find some blessed things in here where God blesses you because that's the way you are. Second thing is, blessings call up what we would call an eschatological theme. And I know that's a $10 word. Let me break it down. In other words, how things play out in the end as time goes on in God's eternal plan, eschatological. 
And it has a dimension of that because sometimes when he's talking about blessed are you, he's talking about when it's all said and done. When God's plan has come to full fruition, you're going to be the ones blessed and they're going to be the ones left out. Now that's not every line of the blessing in there, but there's some of them that have that in the future. It's going to be all right. Another dimension of the blessings is conditionality. That is, the condition is not based on your action or your behavior every time. Sometimes the condition of being blessed is just by your class, where you happen to be, where you happen to live. You just might happen to be poor. You didn't design it that way. You might just happen to be spiritually destitute. You didn't work towards that. Too often we look at the Beatitudes as all of the ideals we have to try to achieve. But that's not necessarily so. You don't want to go out after Jesus has taught us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and you make it your, your life's aim tomorrow to find out how to be poor in spirit so you can be blessed. Well, that's not what it's about. It's about taking some people where they are and reminding them, don't worry about it. You may be born into this. You may have fallen into this. It's not your fault. But I'm telling you, by class, you're still going to be blessed by God. Number four is what is called relational, relational blessing. We think of the first blessings as connected to our relationship with God, poor in spirit. So we're related to God. So we're blessed if we have this relationship. But then there's the relationships of these blessings. And sometimes is your important, the importance of relationship with other people. If you're meek, that's a relationship with God, but it's sort of a relationship with people too. Humble before others. Mourner, mourners, the merciful, the peacemakers, those are all blessings that speak about your relationship with others. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's one of the things you can set out tomorrow to be. How many of you are a brawler? I didn't want to see any hands. How many of you just want to create an incident? How many of you want to be a peacemaker? I I am intrigued by Tim Tebow. I understand he's not the greatest NFL athlete to ever come along. I know that. There's, there's, There's no debate for me about that. I just think he's a neat guy. I just love his attitude. He got cut, and I'm sorry he got cut. He didn't make the team. But I know when he was making, when he was trying out for the team, and he was in scrimmage with the team, that some, some little skirmish broke out between uh, his team and, and, and whoever they were playing. And Timo weighs into the middle of them and calms them down. We're not going to do this now. Let's get along. We've got football to think about. This is ridiculous. And the news picked that up. He is the one that intervenes and brings peace. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. You've got all these other people that's got too much steroids in their body and they can't stand the tension. They want to beat somebody up just because it's a part of their DNA. But our relationship with others, if we're peacemakers instead of brawlers, supremely blessed are we. That's relational blessing. And the final thing is is what's called reversal or contrast. And that is when Jesus lists those who are blessed, by default, there's a bunch of people that are left out. And Luke picks this up. After talking about blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute. All of these that are blessed. Luke brings out what Jesus said, but wasn't included in Matthew's account. But woe to you who are rich, who have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will now go hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you will mourn and weep. So there's the contrast. Blessed are they that mourn. But woe to you who party now, who laugh now. You will mourn someday. That's another example of the eschatological uh, concept of this. That one of these days, all the wrongs are going to be made right. It will be okay in the end. So Jesus gives us a list of those who are in. People who are actually living out the kingdom ethics by circumstance or by choice. This list of countercultural people whom the world would never put on a list of who's who. But Jesus is recruiting and is preparing. It makes it clear that the kingdom of God welcomes the common person and will be perpetuated by common people. You don't have to be somebody special to matter to God. He loves you. In fact, people who are privileged rarely see their need of God. Now, we're all keeping our eye on current events. Everybody who isn't living under a rock knows that Donald Trump is running for president and knows that by his own declaration, I'm very rich. We know. He's told us at least a thousand times so far. I'm so rich. So the question is asked of Donald Trump. Have you ever asked forgiveness of your sins? And he stumbles and he falters and he says, I don't think so. Wait a minute. I don't think so? That's That's a clear no. People who have asked forgiveness of their sins know they have done that. It's not something you forgot. I don't, I, think, I don't think so. He says, when I make a mistake, I just, I just correct it and go on. Now, you see, there's something too, and I'm not trying to pick on one individual person. I'm just trying to give you an example that Jesus identified. It is so hard for those who are self-sufficient to see their need for God. Even the Bible says it's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle and forget about some silly gate There's no such thing, no eye of the needle that the camel has to get down on his knees and goes. We're talking about Jesus making this this statement about a camel getting through the eye of a needle. And he said that'll happen before most rich people get into heaven because the more self-sufficient we are, the less we need God. To the point of one man saying, I don't think I've ever had to ask for forgiveness. But Jesus begins his famous sermon by telling us how God will build his kingdom on the broken in spirit And the pure in the heart. And aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come into this world and choose all the elite? And said, we're going to build the biggest and the best that's ever been. I need the brightest minds. I I need the sharpest people. I need the wealthiest. I need the resources. I need the treasuries. We're going to build this big. Jesus came in and said, give me the tired and the broken and the poor and the rejected. And I'm going to build my church. And when I get done building the church, the kingdom, the gates of hell... The gates of the kingdom of hell will not prevail. God can do it. Those who are repulsed by the humility of Christ, you're not the ends. 
Those who are annoyed by the demands of Christ's ethics, you're not the ends. Those who can't be bothered, bothered with petty righteousness, uh, Pastor, you're just being too legalistic. What does it matter how we talk? You're not the ends. Those who can't comprehend the basic ethical codes of conduct found in the kingdom, you're not the ends. You've been rejected for playing church and never truly honoring the king in your lifestyle. In these first few verses, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Are you in or are you out? It's as simple as that. Would you bow your heads?